And you know, if you've been with me for any length of time, I kind of get lost in this subject a little bit because it's just, it just blows my mind to, stop, to think that you know, this body that I have, this carcass, this tent, this, this spacesuit, whatever you want to call it, you know, that is equipped for this reality is going to be replaced with an eternal, an eternal body clothed from above. That's the end game, brothers and sisters. That's where God is taking us, you know. And so you get to that. If you, we, you've been with us going through Corinthians, you know, you'd think, well, chapter 15 would be, hey, we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be with those that have gone before us into the eternal kingdom. And you would think at the end of chapter 15, well, that's a great place to finish the book, right? I mean, no better place to finish the book than in glory, glorified. Let me read those final verses to you, if you get, so you can get the idea of what I'm thinking here. He says in verse 51, if you just look backwards a little bit of chapter 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be, all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is in the law. But, this is where it ends, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what a great place to finish, right? Let's just go, Lord. Let's get it on and let it be done. And you think that would be perfect. But you know, that's not even the end of that chapter. It's not even the end of chapter 15. Because it continues from that exalted point of our destiny and brings us back to the reality of the here and now and the sojourn that we have upon this earth. What does he say? Therefore, whenever you find a therefore in the scripture, you've got to look back and you've got to ask yourself, what's it? What's it there for? It's always looking back to what he has just said. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now hear this. If you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. Truth should have an, have an outworking within our lives. Amen. See, we don't just receive these great divine mysteries revealed through the word of God so that we can confound the Jehovah Witnesses when they knock on our door on a Saturday morning. That's not what it's about. Or so that we can sit around in our little holy bubble and impress one another with our Bible knowledge and our Bible understanding. That's not what it's about. Nor is it so that we can prove somebody else wrong. I mean, how often do we find ourselves in that place? You know? No, no, no. Truth. Where Scripture is revealed, it, there is always an expectation that that truth will have an outworking within our lives to effectively, please hear this, to effectively work in the lives of others. 
you know the old adage? It's, it's not about me. It can never be about me. You know, the most selfless person that has ever lived and walked on the face of this planet is our Lord and Saviour, right? What did the Apostle Paul say? He says, be imitators of me, he would say, even as I am an imitator of who? Of Christ. The most selfless being that has ever lived is our example. And he would say, it's not about me. Again, I'm always taken back to Gethsemane when I think on these things. And I'm, I'm taken back to that, the night of his arrest. And I'm taken back to those hours leading up to him being taken and, and, being, and, and, and going through so much to ultimately be nailed upon a cross, to shed his righteous, perfect blood for you and I, you know. If, see, if you knew, if you knew the, geog the geography of Jerusalem... When he left the upper room with the disciples and he walked through those, the, the dusty streets of the ancient city and, and left the city, went down into the, Vidra, the Kidron Valley, he crossed over uh, the, the Kidron River, then he went into the base of the Mount of Olives and there he stayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane where he ultimately was arrested and taken. Do you know all he had to do, all he had to do was to walk over the top of Gethsemane and keep on walking into the Judean wilderness and be gone. But no, what did he do? He stops, he prays. And he says, Father, if there is a way, let this cup or this reason that I've come pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. What he was praying was, and again, I've said this so many times, but what he was praying was, Lord, if there be any other way for humanity, to be, for humanity to be forgiven of their sins, if there be any other way for mankind to be restored back into a relationship with the perfect, holy God, Lord, let's go that way. But not my will, but yours be done. That's the most selfless prayer I've ever heard prayed, you know. Heaven gives it all so that you can receive it all. That's what our salvation is about. You know? So when you receive truth, it's not necessarily about us. Yes, it's for the perfecting of the saints. The Bible tells that. It's for our maturity. It's so that we can be conformed or transformed, I should say, into the image of Christ. It's so that that can take place. But the truth that we receive is so that we can have an effective working or outworking from our life to be effective in the lives of others. Now, the scripture always, always expects that. James says it nowhere clearer when he simply says, faith without works is what? Is dead, right? And so we see in Corinthians our glorious destiny laid out before us in that 15th chapter through the resurrection. And that then is followed with this word, therefore, as I said, so what he is saying there is let, in other words, let this be a motivation, our destiny. Let this be a motivation to serve the Lord with all that we have. Did you notice the words that he used? He said steadfast. He said immovable. He said always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
And then he moves into the 16th chapter. And the very first thing he says is that we do this by being a giving person. Again, that is nowhere better revealed than in the person of Christ, in our God. For God so loved the world that he... Who knows John 3.16? Yeah? For God so loved the world that he did something, didn't he? What did he do? Come on, finish it for me, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave, you see. And the very first thing that he says to these Corinthian believers as an outward expression of the divine mysteries that have been revealed to them. Now, this is so simple, yet at the same time so profound. It's so simple, but it can have the most amazing effect, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around us. And that is that we just simply be giving people like how God is giving. Remember this, the chapter breaks in your Bible were not put there in the original, in the original writings. You know that. The original text inspired by the Holy Spirit is just a flowing message that just keeps on going. And it's important for you and I to recognize that and to read it like that. So having said all of that, would you read it like that with me now? So let's go back to verse 57 where he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. So you were right with me up until that now, weren't you? Now, concerning the collection of the saints. He's talking about giving. He's talking about giving of our substance. He's talking about giving from our pockets is what he's talking about, you know. But you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? One of the clearest examples, I know I've said it, one of the clearest examples of the abounding work of the Lord is giving to the saints. He says there in that verse, such labor will never be in vain. Now you've got to stop and you've got to think about the believers. If you haven't been with us through this study, you may not be aware, but you've got to stop and think about the believers that are receiving this message. From the very beginning of the epistle, we were told that this Corinthian church is a divided church. You know, they're arguing amongst themselves over who they should follow. They're looking at men and they're measuring men against men to see who would be the best for them and the best for them to follow. We see there in the Corinthians in the fifth chapter, I think it is that, no, uh, the fourth chapter, well, somewhere there, you, you know, that they're, that they're taking one another to court, you know. You know, rather than practicing spiritual pr principles that could, could well lead a person to restoration, rather than that, they're going to the secular courts and they're suing one another. An incredibly terrible testimony before the world around them. There's sexual immorality going on at all sorts of in, uh, levels, and we looked at all that amongst them. 
You know, they're causing less mature believers than themselves to stumble by doing things that weaker Christians just didn't understand. They're getting drunk in their meetings. There is no order in the services. They're, they're, everyone there is exercising their own perceived spiritual gifts with no concern for what anybody else may be wanting to bring to the service. They're, they're just out of control. And if you want to sum it all up, if you bring the whole, the whole body of this text together and you want to sum up who these people are, you know who they are? they're takers that's what they are they went to church to get for themselves they were not givers they didn't come to give they were not motivated by what God has done for them to give but they were motivated in some sense simply just to receive and what a horrible place that is to come every Sunday morning isn't it if you come into church every Sunday morning and you are just bumping into people who are expecting to get something out of you. What a horrible thought. So the first question we've got to ask ourselves when we look at this passage is that, you know, I've got to ask myself, am, am, I, a, am I a giver? And I've got to be honest, just as you've got to be honest. And so what Paul gives us now are these principles for giving. So if you'll read it with me, the first four verses, he now says, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so that you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But it is fitting that I also go. If, but if it is fitting that I also go, then I'll go with them or they can come with me. This is a very practical exhortation about the, the giving, the gift that's been given to the church there in Jerusalem. So he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so must... You do also. See, Paul, what he'd been doing was he'd been taking up gifts or collection um, for the believers in the Jerusalem church. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can read about it in Colossians. You can believe it, read about it in Romans chapter 15. It's, it's, he mentions it over and over again. You know, he, he talks about the church in, in Macedonia and Achaia, how they were pleased to contribute to, it says, to the poor saints, those that were there in Jerusalem. And, and, and it's for a reason that he was taking this collection. And I'm saying this for a reason, because to be a believer in Jerusalem at that time it was tough. They, they were doing it very tough, you know. You've got to remember that the first Christians were Jews. And in Jerusalem, they were Jewish Christians. And to become a Christian in the first century Jerusalem, you were shunned by your fellow Jews. They, they had no acceptance. They had no support that came from the synagogue. And in fact, they were, they were booted out of the synagogue, you know. And to be a Jew then, your entire life centered around the synagogue. Many were kicked out of their homes by their Jewish landlords. Many were, were, were simply just abandoned by their families and treated as dead the moment they said that they had found their, the saviour. Many of them had all of their possessions confiscated. 
No one would give them a job. Nobody would give them a job. It was a tough thing to be a believer in Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2 tells us that at the very beginning of the church, that the believers there had all things in common. It says they sold all of their possessions having all things in common, and that's what they did. They supported one another. They, they got all their stuff together and they sold it and they shared it amongst the, the wealth amongst the believers. Now, it sounds like some sort of utopian dream, doesn't it? You know, if we could all just get together, sell all our stuff, combine everything. Yeah, no. No, not at all, you know. It might sound great, but you've got to remember, if you go, again, let's go back to the start of the church. When the church was born, there were 120 believers in an upper room. Remember that? The Spirit of God falls upon the church. Peter goes out in the street and begins to preach this salvation. 3,000 people give their hearts to Christ. That's day one. The church goes from 120 to 3,120 in one day. And a few days later, there are 5,000 people that give their lives to Christ. And historians tell us that the greater percentage of the new Christians were people that were coming from the lower socioeconomic groups, and many of them, in fact, were slaves. And so very quickly, with this, this, this situation, the church at Jerusalem, uh, they needed help, right? And, and that's what this is about. And what we need to recognise, this is what Paul's heart is, that this help is meant to be met through the church through the body of believers. And it goes without saying that the primary goal of your giving ought to be the well-being, the welfare of your fellow Christians. The primary motivation why we give. You see, the Corinthians themselves, it seems they had very little care. Very little care for one another. Remember what I said? Takers, you know. They, they, had a, they, had a, they had created a divided, fractured culture within their church. And again, let me tell you, that's not a nice place to be around, but a church. And I would hope this is us. I would hope that this is the churches of Albany. But the church that is motivated to give for the well-being of their fellow believers. You see, it's purposeful giving, isn't it? And the purpose of giving is to see one another prosper, you know. It's giving to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, maintained, and yes, furthered. We give to those causes, but primary, the primary motivation for you to give is that your brothers and sisters have their needs taken care of. That creates the unified fellowship. That creates the testimony to this world. The sad thing is most of the world is looking at the church and saying, you guys don't get on. Most of the world is looking at the church and seeing things highlighted within the media where, you know, where, where, where ministers are ripping off the church and people are doing this and people are doing that. And people look at the church and say, it's a joke, right? Let's be honest. That's the testimony that we've given. And that's why Paul is saying, if you can just get your primary motivation tied down, it's not about me. It's about you. If we can get that tied down, and if we can live for one another, if we can serve one another, if we can provide for one another, yeah, we all have our jobs, and yeah, we all take care of our homes, and yes, we all pay our rent, pay our mortgages, and so on. 
But some of us struggle, right? Some of us find it difficult. And that's where the motivation of the church to give should be at its paramount. That's what, that should be the crescendo of our hearts. I'm here for you. You're, you're here for me. It's a unified fellowship. It's a place of incredible blessing. It's a place that people want to be. So he gives us these principles now. He says, on the first day of the week, verse 2, he says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, as he may prosper that there be no collection when I come. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you read that Paul has been doing this for a year now. You know, for a year he's been on this journey, taking the collection for the saints. But, but I think there's something important here. He says, on the first day of the week. Where's the first day of the week? Well, here we are on the first day of the week. It's Sunday, right? The first day of the week is Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And the church begins to meet together on that day. Now, what is being said here, I think it's very significant. You know? Because, you know, we've got lots of different ways of giving now, don't we? I mean, some of us give online, some of us give automatically, some of us, you know. But there's a principle that's tied down here. And I do think it's significant. The believers worshipped our resurrected Lord on Sunday by gathering together. And on Sunday, Paul says, believers gather together and that's when we give. That's when we give. It's significant. Why? Because it reminds us that our giving is as much a part of our worship as anything else that we do on the Sunday. I mean, look, we worship Jesus every day. That's right, don't we? Of course we do. But what we do on Sunday, Christian, is very special. What we do on Sunday is we memorialize the fact that Christ rose from the dead. See, that's why the early church, that's all they preached. You know that? That's all they preached, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that took the gospel message to the far corners of this world. To the far corners of this world. And we gather every Sunday to memorialize. You know what memorialize means? We do something so we never forget. That's what the communion service is about, isn't it? He, what did Jesus say? He says, often as you do this, do this in remembrance of, of me. It's a memorialization. Now, is that a real word? Did I make that up? I don't know. But we memorialize Christ's resurrection. We gather as a family to worship him with thanksgiving in our hearts. And Paul is clearly linking our giving to this worship. This is why it's significant. So we give worshipfully. We give regularly. He said, let it happen on the Sunday. Paul, again, we see it in all of his writings. We see it when he was writing to the Philippians. Um, talking about their giving to him as worship. L let me read it to you. If you're quick, turn there, but I'm just going to keep moving. It says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only, he says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again 
for my necessity, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit to abound to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. He says, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent to me. And what does he call them? It's a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It's worshipful giving. So let us ask ourselves, you know, are we givers? Am I a giver? You know, and is my primary motivation for giving the need and the well-being of my fellow believers? See, it's interesting when you look at you look at the Gospels, and you look at the the um, the New Pe- New Testament epistles, especially the writings of Paul. Nowhere, nowhere do you see Paul saying, "You got to give in order." To build this great edifice. You, know, you don't see it anywhere. And sadly, that's what is often happening, isn't it? Throughout the history of the church. You know, and the church becomes recognized as this... Um, well, you know what I'm saying. This entire TV channel is dedicated to why you should give so that people can have their aeroplanes and they can have their cars and they can... You, you don't get me started, I get myself started on this, but you know, the world looks at that and it's a joke, isn't it? You know, these big, rich, fat Christians living in their compounds with their entire families in their multi-million dollar bank accounts and their, and their fleets of limousines and all this sort of stuff. It's more out there than you know about Nowhere in the scripture, and it's a joke, and nowhere in the scripture does it say, give for such edifices. Only will you find it saying, give for the well-being of your brothers and sisters. That's, that's our motivation. So, am I a giver? Is that my primary motivation? Do I give worshipfully when I give? I'm honouring God in heaven. I'm looking after his people in a sense, you know. And it's not spasmodic. He says, let it be done on the first day, the Lord's day. The day when we worship our God. And here's the thing. It's not saying anywhere, and we've got to touch on this. It doesn't say anywhere that we should give so much either. Again, I, I, used, to, I, I used to get... I don't know why I did it. I kept going back to those late night TV shows, those, t- those, those TV programs, and you have, you have these guys with the big crazy hair and, you know, they're 80 years old and they've got jet black hair and I, I shouldn't make mention of that, but, you know, these TV evangelists that are there telling you, you know, if you would give a $1,000, right, you know, God's going to give back to you tenfold, a hundredfold, if you would. You know, and I noticed the only guy, you know, Wearing the gold encrusted jewellery is, is that guy, you know. Because nowhere in the scripture does it say that you should give X amount. It doesn't say that, you know. But again, let your giving be worshipfully. Let it be just as sacred as everything else that we do on the Lord's day. Just as sacred as when we gather around the communion table and we break the bread. And we take the wine and we remember that he did it for us. And when I give, I do it for us as well, you see. So he says, 
Let it be motivated right. Let it be worshipful. Let it be regular. And then the second verse, he says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. And I've got to say this. He says, let each one of you. And once again, it's never demanding quantity, but rather it's about a willingness to be a part of God's provision for his church. Let me read again 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says in the first verse, it says, Moreover, brethren, we made known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the richness of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, and that's the key, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. He said, they didn't have a great deal to give, but they gave. And that's what both Jesus and Paul is saying. It's never about how much you or I give, but the issue, of course, is our willingness, motivated by our heart towards one another. Worshipful giving, purposeful giving. The New Testament does not give percentages that we are to give. You know, we often throw this word, the tithe, around, don't we? You know, this 10% that's taken from the Old Testament teaching. But the tithe is nowhere taught in the New Testament church. It's only mentioned one time. And that's when Jesus was, in fact, challenging the Pharisees. Because he was saying, he said unto them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrite. Because you pay your tithe of your mint and your anum and your, and, your, your, and your cumin and all these things. You get out and you all the things that you've been prospered with that week. You get your 10%, you work it out and you give it. But he says you have omitted the weightier things, the more important things of the law. And that is judgment, mercy, faith. You know, He says these you, have ought, you ought to have done and not leave the others undone. He was respecting the law that was given to the people of Israel but he was challenging them about their hypocrisy nowhere do we find the tithe taught to the New Testament church in fact historically the tithe is seen nowhere in the early church history you can read the early church fathers and nowhere do they mention the tithe it's not until you get sorry to say this but it's not until you get to the Roman church that the tithe is enforced again and, 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 and today, again, it's, it's um, you know, we say, well, okay, it's not enforced, but it's a good principle. And I guess it is. But, but you've got to have a proper understanding of what the tithe was all about. The tithe was God's provision for the, 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 the priesthood and the running of the, the, the temple and amongst other things for the Old Testament church. And so there was the 10%, but you know, it wasn't just 10% flat rate. 
See, if you, if you were an Old Testament um, believer, it was a 10%. There were multiple tithes that were given. And quite frankly, if you gathered them all together and added them all up, you were probably demanded by the law, the Old Testament law, to give in excess of 30% of your income. And, and more in certain places. That's right. Exactly. They do it to us. Yeah. You know? So the tithe was a part of the law to the Old Testament nation of Israel. But to you and I, it's not mentioned. So we're never told percentages. But you know what we're told? We're told to be proportionate in our giving. So again, he says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay up something aside. Excuse me. Storing up as he has prospered. Again, our giving is not, I'll say it, is not about percentages, but it's about proportionality. As God has prospered us. Don't misunderstand me. The Bible talks about sacrificial giving. And we all know the story of the widow's might. We know that. That's there. And, And Jesus commended her. Because she gave, yes, she gave a little, but what she gave was all that she had. So there's sacrificial giving. But what Paul is talking about here is how we we generally approach giving. And that is proportionately to how God has blessed us. And I think there's a very simple principle here that's being brought out. And Paul is basically saying that everything, the provision should not just come from one sector of the church. Not just the poor people giving and not just the rich people giving, but proportionately according to how God has blessed us. You see, it should be shared. should be shared from those motivations. should be shared with that purpose. It should be shared worshipfully. And I don't want to add any more to that. Because I think the church has spent way too long trying to conceive ways to make you give more, which is not what God does. Let me read something to you, and I'll finish with this. Um, There's an Athenian statesman. His name was, uh, I can't say his name, Um, Aristotide, I think his name was. But he wrote about an observation that he made of the second century Christians. And let me just read it to you and and do with it what you will. But I think it's an important observation. He said, they, that is the Christians, walk in humility and kindness and falsehood is not found amongst them. And they love one another. They despise not the widow and they grieve not the orphan. He that, has distri- he that has distributes liberally, did I say that right? He that hath distributes liberally to him that does not have. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as if they were their brother. They call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. And when one of their poor passes away from this world, and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear that any of their number is in prison or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, the namesake of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. 
If there is among them a man that is poor and needy and they have not an abundance of necessity, wait till you hear this. They will fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. So they'll stop eating in order to make sure that people are fed. So that was an observation of the church. I will read one more scripture and we'll bring it to a close. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said this. He said, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready as you a year ago. He's talking about the offering, right? That he's collecting. And your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians came with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. So this is a year later, right? That it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. And here he goes. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And there's a principle that you can't outgive God. It's very simple. If you're going to give for the purposes of God, God's going to take care of you. That's his promise. You know? So notice what he says in light of that. He says, so let each one give as he purposes in his own heart. There's no percentages. There's no numbers. There's no manipulation. But just give as you purpose in your own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. What does he say? For God loves a cheerful giver. You know that word cheerful is where we get our word hilarious from. I like it, don't you? God loves a hilarious giver. How do you get to be a, a hilarious giver? Well, by giving, Jim, you're right. But it's applying these principles. Let your giving be purposeful, people. Let the purpose be the motivation of the well-being of your brothers and sisters whom you love and whom you care for. Let it be purposeful. Let it be as worship unto your God. Let it be proportionate to how God has provided for you. If that's where your heart is at, guess what your giving will be? It will be cheerful. Because you're a part of what God is doing in his family. And that's all I want to say. Because as I said here, too much is said on this. Too much manipulation. Seek your God. See where God will have your eyes to see the needs. And just give in to that. And God will bless you to be a blessing. Isn't that right? I'm going to invite the worship team up. And uh, let's finish by worshipping our God. If you've got any questions on this, if you've got any concerns on this, please don't be afraid. Um, we can look at scripture together and we can 
we can see what God actually says. Let's pray while the guys come up and we'll finish. I think we're going to finish with one of my favourite, favourite. Yeah. Be thou my vision. Do you love it? You know, this is the oldest. This, I've probably said this to you, but this is the oldest recorded hymn that we have. And we don't sing a lot of hymns here, I know. This is from the 8th century. So, um, be thou my vision. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your heart towards your people. Lord, as we consider these things and we look at your heart and we see that you are a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who is merciful, a God who is compassionate, a God who has been willing to give it all for the sake of your family. Lord, may this heart be ours. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to recognise needs and to recognise that we can be a part of your solution, of your provision for your church. Um, Bless giving hearts, I pray, Lord. Bless them, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, feel free to stand. Let's do it. Let's sing this song and make this song the prayer for the week ahead and hopefully leave this place with a song in our hearts and be prepared.
gotta say I love singing with you guys <laughs> on a Sunday.